X and Cube podcast, a podcast where we talk about board games and the community that gathers around them. And tonight we have a designer episode for you where we forgo much of our usual podcast banter and focus on game design and the game design process. And with us tonight, we have a very special guest, Mark Swanson. Welcome to the show, Mark. Nice to be here, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, so Mark is the designer of Feudum, and if you are not familiar, Feudum is a heavy, sprawling, sandbox, point salady Euro game set in a whimsical world that is masterfully and beautifully illustrated by Justin Schultz. Mark, would you say that that's a, a fair description of the game? I think that's pretty fair. <laughs> and anything you would add? Uh, well, I guess we'll get into some of the um, some of the details of the game. Uh, I would say there, it's a resource management game, a a game where there's an e- economic ecosystem. Um, and I don't know, point salad is one of those words that. Sometimes it's used in a flattering way and sometimes not. Yes. Uh, the, the regular listeners of the show will know that for me, that is a very uh, endearing term. So there okay. you go. I will be flattered by it then. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, so before we get into some game design talk, uh, I think it's cool to understand that game design isn't all that we are. Uh, No human is simply any one thing uh, and cannot be defined by a title. And so I would love to just hear a little bit about your life. I think that it's something cool to offer the listeners uh, to to just have uh, you share just a little bit about yourself with regards to things other than games. Uh, So go ahead and, and take a few minutes and uh, tell us some things, you know, like, you know, what what do you do for uh, a day job? Um, you know, do you, do you have a family? What are what are some things that interest you outside of games? So, what what makes you you other than game design? Well, let's see. I guess like everybody, I'm multidimensional. I do like other things besides games for sure. Um, uh, I'm a professor uh, by day. I teach strategic writing at the Missouri School of Journalism uh, here in uh, Columbia, Missouri, although I live in Lake St. Louis. Uh, Besides games, uh, I like to watch uh, international soccer, uh, La Liga in particular. Uh, FC Barcelona is my favorite team. Uh, Of course, Leo Messi is uh, my hero. Uh, I also enjoy science fiction and fantasy literature and movies. Um, And lately I've been working a lot on my yard. So um, (laughs) there's a lot of leaves out there. Yeah, yard yard work is never ending. Let's see, I like tortellini uh, and philosophy. Um, Oh, I like cats and and run on sentences. (laughs) That's awesome, that's awesome. And and Mark, do you do you have a, a a family, at least maybe close to you? I do. Or? I do. I am married. 
Uh, I have three daughters and two stepchildren. And um, I have a cat. And although the cat is not with me, my daughter, <laughs> my daughters have it. Um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so one other, one other game related question, uh, before we get into, uh, game design talk, um, if you had to choose, and I, I feel like this question is uh, a good way to get to know somebody, get into their brain a little bit. If you had to choose a top three games of all time, what would they be? Oh, wow. I can't do it. Um, my, top, <laughs> my top 10, I should say, is always fluctuating. But I can list a few go-to games that I, I guess you'd say I keep on a lower shelf so they're accessible. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I'm kind of looking at my my bookcase right now. Uh, Russian Railroads, uh, Goa, Village, Terra Mystica, Caverna, Puerto Rico, Calus, El Grande, Ra, Voyages of Marco Polo. How's that? Yeah, let's go. You are uh, you are in good company, my friend. Well, you probably <laughs> noticed I have uh, quite a few worker placement games. That's a, yeah. one of my uh, favorite mechanics. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's it's such a a versatile mechanism. Yes, it is. It's it's not my only favorite, and I guess we'll get into some of the other ones I like, but. Um, I, I do I do love it. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, to to get us started, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, you know l- let us know how you got into game design, and more importantly for me, why did you get into game design? Oh wow, let's see. Well, uh, I, I grew up on fantasy adventure novels, you know, by J.R.R. Tolkien and David Eddings and Piers Anthony. So I've always loved sci-fi and fantasy adventure and um, medieval worlds, science fiction worlds where, you know, anything could happen. And um, I also loved board games and all of the various themes that board games could bring. But it wasn't until I'd say the late 90s when I discovered uh, Euro style games. They kind of used to call them German board games way back when. And I guess some people still do, but kind of the more common term now is Euro Euros or Euro style. And I immediately fell in love with, you know, all kinds of titles like Puerto Rico and Tigris and Euphrates and Power Grid. And um, I'm looking at my my board, my bookcase again, El Grande and, and Taj Mahal, many, many games. And and I got hooked. And And like any hobby, you know, it's not long before you start to appreciate the, the nuances of, of board games. Uh, for example, I found myself gravitating towards particular game authors like Reiner Knizia or, or Martin Wallace or uh, probably one of my favorites, Uwe Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also particular game mechanics like worker placement or, or area control or... or um, action programming. So that's kind of, uh, I guess, the the evolution of how I got into games and why I started to become, I guess, obsessed with them. 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, I I think, uh, and I'm not going to speak for you, but uh, for myself, when when I find something that I I really really enjoy, it seems like I always have to try to create something in that world. So if it's if it's board games, I want to try and create board games. If it's music, I want to all of a sudden become a musician. You know, whatever it is, I, I always find myself wanting to to create uh, within that space that I love. Yeah, I can I can completely relate to that. I mean, after playing countless games, uh, you start to imagine, well, what would be the game that that I would create? Yeah, that's that's awesome, Mark. Uh, so Feudum is your first and only game so far, at least according to uh, Board Game Geek, uh, besides the various expansions that you've, uh, you've also released. Um, and it was released in 2017 under the Odd Bird Games brand. And so I have two questions concerning uh, those realities. Okay. Uh, the first... The first is, um, why begin your game design journey with such a large, heavy game? Um, Why not start with something lighter and work your way up? And then secondarily, um, why did you decide to take the self-publishing route? Why not just pitch it to a publisher? Uh, So we'll we'll start with the the first. Um, Why why start with such a, a huge game? Well, I could just say that I'm a masochist, but I won't. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, as I said, I, I after playing a lot of games, I wanted to, um, you know, find the ultimate game, you know, the holy grail of game, one that featured all of my favorite mechanics, um, and particularly one that featured uh, an open world uh, where you could do anything and things were less structured. And a lot of folks, you know, call this a sandbox game like you did earlier. And after searching and searching, I couldn't really find a game like that. So I decided to invent it using all of the knowledge that I had gleaned from from playing so many games. And my, my goal was never to, you know, market a game to the masses, you know, or try to appeal to to, to the masses, which, you know, don't always go for a heavier style game. My goal was to make a game that, that I wanted to play. And if people liked it, then that would be a plus, I thought. So I guess it was a labor of love for me, um, kind of a blind shot in the dark, really. And I'm fortunate that, that many people from around the world uh, liked the, the game I made. I mean, there's no greater feeling than to have a total stranger from you know, the Netherlands or, or China, or the other day, someone from Israel uh, contacted me or uh, Brazil, you know, t- they tell me, you know, that their game, that my game is their favorite game of all time. And it's, it's just been a, a wonderful ride. Man, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I, I guess that, that kind of plays into uh, why you wanted to take the self-publishing route, but, but maybe explain that a little bit more um, and how the Oddbird Games uh, brand kind of came to be. Sure. I mean, I think this is, you know, something that every new designer has to face at some point. And I think the answer largely depends on 
your skill set and and what you're willing to take on. If if you self-publish, it's it's a business. You know, you're in charge of everything from marketing and funding the game to hiring an artist and playtesting to uh, you know finding distributors and uh, uh, international what they call localization partners around the world. And it's a lot of work, but you know, the payoff is that, that you can earn a lot more. Um, and then the alternative is, is if you only want to focus on game design, then you need to find a publisher that's willing to take a risk on you. And some designers do this. They'll go, you know, to a game convention, like say Gen Con and do something called speed dating where the prospective publishers um, will line up and they'll listen to, you know, your game pitch. And competition is pretty stiff. So, you know, your game has to be pretty polished. And this route is by far much simpler and you, you don't risk your own capital, um, but you do surrender creative control and, you know, any royalty you earn from game sales is potentially a, a lot less than if you successfully self-publish. So for me, I wanted to, to self-publish, and I knew it was, for me it was the way to go pretty early on. And I, I remember being at Gen Con and meeting a relatively um, unknown um, game designer at the time, Jamie Stagmeyer. Of course, now he's you know mm -hmm. industry guru, but he he uh, he showed me his game Viticulture, one of his first games. Uh, and he started telling me, telling me a little bit about the, the industry and how to self-publish. And I exchanged a few emails with him and I checked out the blog that he was doing, the Stonemeyer blog. And I, um, eventually bought his book, uh, uh, that he wrote, um, a, a, a crowdfunders strategy guide. And so I discovered Kickstarter and I saw it as being, really the, the democratization of venture capital. So instead of taking out a hefty bank loan or giving away some of the company to a, an angel investor, Kickstarter let me turn the masses uh, or turn to the masses and, and then use their pre-order pledges to help pay for manufacturing. It was, it was a wonderful route for me. That's awesome. That's, that's good stuff. It's, it's great to hear uh, stories of designers who have taken the the self-publishing route and and uh, have had a really positive experience and love it and know that that's what they are supposed to be doing. So that's that's awesome. Uh, let's let's dig into feudum then a, a little bit deeper. Um, I just want to say that I've I've played feudum now a a time and a half. The first half was a uh, kind of getting our, our feet wet, uh, you know, just making sure we understand the rules. And then we got another playthrough and I fell in love with the game. Um, and I, you know, because it's because it's a, a, a larger game, it's it's a little bit more difficult for me to get it to the table as much as I want to because I'm very excited about it. Um, so I'm, I'm pumped to, to play it again and hopefully I can carve out the time and, and find the group to... Uh, to, to play it soon, but let's, let's dig into the design uh, a little bit deeper. Um, did you begin your process with this game with a uh, thematic concept? Uh, did you start with kind of a, a core mechanism? Did you start with 
an experience that you wanted to create, uh, a, a target demographic. Uh, how did how did the game come about? Okay, well, as as I mentioned before, I, I was trying to envision the the holy grail of games. You know, one that was an open world sandbox where where you could eke out your medieval existence, as it were. And I wanted a game that featured a working cyclical economy. I I knew I needed a unique mechanic that I could call my own. I think that's the challenge of every designer. There's all kinds of kind of recycled mechanics out there that you can apply to your game engine. But if you can if you can come up with something new and unique, I think that sets you apart. And so I started toying with mechanics to create this economic ecosystem. And I wanted this to be set in medieval times. So the theme and the mechanics were kind of merged together in my brain from the, from the get-go. And I know that some designers start out with just the pure math and mechanics. But for me, the theme of the game inspired and kind of gave shape to the mechanics along the way. For, for example, you know, in my game, the farmer supplies the merchant with goods who in turn sells those goods to the alchemist who uses the goods to invent black powder and that arms the knight and the knight can defend the noble who grants land to the church monks who give alms to the poor farmers. You know, it's a whole circle. And, you know, just like that, I, I knew I had this cyclical economy, but I don't think I could have developed that without the knowing about the thematic characters, uh, medieval characters of the game. And, you know, a lot of a lot of games influenced feudal mechanics. Um, you know, the the like uh, I'll just off the top of my head the the multiple character roles in Puerto Rico, uh, the action programming of a game called Maharaja, where you know every turn you have four actions, um, the area control of of El Grande, you know, where you're vying for influence in various regions. Uh, and then I guess the resource uh, gathering of so many games. Um, but like, like I said, I knew I needed a unique mechanic that I, that I could call my own. So that was kind of the impetus. Yeah, the, uh, that, that push and pull mechanism uh, that is so uh, central to the game, I thought was, uh, was wonderful. Um, and I, I thought that it was unique. I, I hadn't quite experienced anything like that up and up until that point. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, did you, did you have, uh, well, I guess, first of all, was this your actual like first game design that you committed to, or, or did you have other designs that you had worked on previously that, uh, maybe gave you some practice, if you will, going into this design? <laughs> That's was this, I mean, did you just jump right in with this? No, no. I, you know, I had, I'm trying to think, I, I worked hard on a game uh, about the, um, let's see, I worked on a game about escaping from prison. I worked on a game about, that involved uh, tornadoes. I worked on a game about, um, uh, let me, I'm trying to think here. Gosh, there's so many, so many that I kind of started and then just kind of left because they I, they failed to inspire me. Um, uh, the, I worked on a game about the Panama Canal. Uh, that's the one I couldn't remember. Um, okay. It's so funny because now there is a game about the Panama Canal and it's pretty good. And I played it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome. 
Uh, well, you know, Feudum, the, that's a, a big jumping off point. Um, and so, so way to go. Did you, did you have any, uh, specific design goals or ideals that, that drove you besides kind of this, uh, overarching vision of, you know, wanting to create this open world game with a a certain theme? Did you have any design goals like, okay, I want this to not exceed this price point, or I want to make sure that I, uh, you know, have this specific point of randomness in the game? Or did you have any kind of uh, goals or or ideals that you felt like you really needed to hit? Yeah, absolutely. I I think resource management, to me, is one of the hallmarks of a good game. So being able to allocate resources wisely throughout the game is so much fun for me, and I wanted that to be a big part of the game. Another must for me is, is multiple paths to victory. I love games that you can play where you know there are many different ways you can play them and still win with, by pursuing unique strategies. And that was key. And then I would say uh, the, um, the closer the mechanics of the game are married to the theme, the better. So that was important to me. Some, sometimes the game theme feels kind of tacked on, but if you can create mechanics that make it feel like you're immersed in the time and place of the game, well, that's just so much more satisfying. Yeah, and one thing that we've talked about on on uh, the podcast before is how theme is really helpful uh, when teaching a game or or uh, facilitating the the learning of the game to to players. And you know, with a game of this caliber, uh, I, I think that it probably was very much to your advantage to 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 marry the the theme and mechanisms uh it definitely helps you know for for players jumping in to to be able to learn the game i think that's a really insightful point um i can clearly see how the theme of a game um makes a game intuitive so oftentimes play testers would 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 sometimes question a particular um, mechanic, and they'd ask, well, what's the flavor of that particular rule? What's the fl- the theme flavor for that particular reason you do that? And I'd have to justify it because that kind of, you know, if you, if, if, if at every turn there's a thematic reason for why you're executing a particular mechanic, that's one less trip back to the rule book for some people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so there, there's one uh, one aspect of your game that I, I really wanted to talk to you about. Uh, so in the, the Euro game realm, uh, direct player interaction can be kind of a uh, contentious realm to get into. Uh, some players uh, love a lot of direct player interaction. Some players could play, uh, you know, multiplayer solitaire kind of game. Um, And so in Feudum, there is kind of an interesting reality that if you want there to be, there can be a lot of direct player interaction and can bring about uh, kind of some player-on-player brutality. 
Um, but also, if you don't want there to be as a group, uh, there doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, so was this something that you wanted from the outset, uh, or did it? Did this kind of uh, player interaction did it did it just naturally appear in the design? Yeah, that's a great question. I knew that I wanted it uh, from the get go, and when I was creating Feudum, I knew that most of the Euro style games that I loved featured what you would call indirect conflict, meaning, you know, you might be vying for the same resource and only one person gets it and the other doesn't, but you're not actually knocking an opponent off the board. But for Feudum, I deliberately wanted a bit more direct conflict than that. So in Feudum, you can battle and remove an opponent's pawn from the board, but, you know, I made sure it would be quite easy for the opponent to migrate back onto the board quickly. Um, and, and that it would be a little bit forgiving in that in that sense. Um, it's funny because one of the first uh, um, board game influencers that got excited about Feudum was Richard Ham of Brado Runs Through, <laughs> and his, his excitement really helped Feudum gain some early uh, recognition. But eventually, when he learned there was a bit of direct conflict, he decided not to review the game. And he's kind of known for that. He's known, you know, that people call him a care bear, care bear for that reason. But I explained to him politely, you know, and I got to, I got to meet, meet uh, him at, um, at Essen in Germany. So it was, it was a kind of a dream come true to finally get to meet him. But uh, I, I explained to him politely that, the, that combat was a minor part of the game. And I kind of went into this long explanation about it. And he kind of laughed and said that I sounded exactly like Jamie Stagmire, who was also trying to convince him that his combat system in his game Scythe was but one path to victory. But I learned that uh, that Rado didn't uh, review Scythe for the same reason. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely uh, has, well, he not only has that reputation, but it, I mean, it's, it's, self, it's self-proclaimed, you know, he, yeah. he, just, he just prefers uh, more, more indirect uh, player interaction. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, the, the full game that we played through, um, we did not, uh, attack or, or do combat with each other one time. Um, and so I, I just think that it's, it's a wonderful, uh, system in which if you have a group that prefers less direct player interaction, you can have that experience and, and have a wonderful a wonderful time with it. Uh, I, 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 I think it's brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was, that's definitely intentional. Um, there can be games where everyone chooses kind of, um, a more peaceful farmer lifestyle and you have farms all over the board. Other times when you're, you know, going into to battle right, right off the bat. Um, and, and, uh, that, that, like I said, that was intentional. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think the next game we play, I'm just going to go straight uh, combat and, and see how that goes. Well, we could play on uh, Tabletopia. Oh, we should do that sometime. That'd be great. Uh, so what what were some of the challenges that you faced in the designing and development of Feudum? Mm, yeah, I would say adjusting point values to, to balance the game. Uh, was a challenge. Um, I collected mounds and mounds of data 
in an effort to balance the game and reward multiple paths to victory. And I think a lot of designers fear releasing a game that, you know, eventually gets broken by, by the masses, meaning someone finds the optimal way to win the game statistically, making all the other paths to victory unattractive. And then the game gets, you know, a bit unidimensional. And this actually happened to um, uh, Andrew Seyfarth and his game Puerto Rico, uh, which is a game that, you know, it was, I think, number one on Board Game Geek for five years or four years in a row. And um, of course, the, the author has altered the rules in subsequent releases to to adjust the or to prevent this. And it's I think it's perfectly acceptable for a game designer to, to do this, because no matter how much you play test a game, it's just not. Uh, the same as you know, tens of thousands of people uh, playing your game all at once and 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 breaking it. So, um, I think uh, a fair amount of playtesting though is important so that it doesn't have the, the broken part of it doesn't happen too often. Fortunately, no one has has told me that they've broken Feudum or they, that they, there's an optimal way. There's quite a bit of uh, controversy about the optimal way to play on on uh, the Feudum Board Game Geek page, which I love to to read over sometimes. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of uh, other challenges. I think ma- making sure the art and the iconography uh, of your game is, is conducive to gameplay. Uh, game art and gameplay kind of has to feel integrated. Ideally, you you want the gameplay to be to be intuitive, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah one one thing that I, I feel like uh, or or some some criticisms that uh, that I've heard uh, about Feudum uh, had to do with either the the rule book or uh, some of the iconography or just the clarity of the 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 board layout and design, um, and it, and it sounds like that uh, was something that you were conscious of, uh, but I mean, uh, you can't. There, there's no perfect game out there. Every every game has uh, some some kind of flaw or or some kind of uh, thing that that maybe could have been uh, better or or done better. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I certainly uh, learned a lot. Um... Uh, about Feudum after, you know, tens of thousands of people played it. Um, I learned about some of the the vessel paths were a little bit hard to read or a particular rule on page 17 was was difficult. People would approach me at at, at game conventions and ask about a particular rule on, on a particular page. And uh, the odd thing about it is I knew exactly what they were talking about and provided a a quick and satisfactory answer, <laughs> but um, uh, and and of course, you know, I, I have uh, altered uh, or corrected certain hard to understand places, um, and that's you know that's a there's a continual polishing, a continual refinement that goes on in subsequent releases. So, uh, but you do tr- you know you I think every designer tries to get it perfect, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's cool though. I mean. What a what a flattering thing that somebody would approach you uh, out in public life and and ask you about a specific rule, you know. I'm still um, amazed that people even recognize me. Of course, this <laughs> only happens at game conventions, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you're not but like you must have seen my my picture on on a website and were able to kind of track me down inside of a convention hall, but it, it definitely happens. 
<laughs> you're you're not just like at the grocery store and and random people come up to you asking for your autograph. No, thank God. Oh. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, I guess going off of of this, looking back, uh, was there anything that you maybe would have done differently or or would have changed with the the base game? Oh boy, you're asking if I if I have any regrets. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I have to say, I try not to second guess myself. I mean, I think most every single decision uh, I made about Feudum was was arrived at after countless edits. And the game went through so many revisions. And like I said earlier, I, you know, I suppose some of the vessel routes and the iconography could have been clearer. Uh, my, mm-hmm. my artist, Justin, and I tried to strike a balance between, you know, his amazing art and and legibility. Uh, but be- besides that, I'm pretty happy with with how it turned out. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I actually, I uh, I, I really appreciate the uh, heart that is obvious that that you've put into uh, this game, and um, I, I also appreciate uh, the art direction in the game. Um, so often, at least in the Euro game space, uh, we kind of get kind of put into a, a certain style of art and a certain art direction where it just it just gets a little bit stale. And so I, I appreciate the love and attention that went into uh, not only the mechanisms, but also the uh, art and the art direction in the game. Thank you. There, there's so many aspects to a game that that make a game great. And I and I I think that there's in addition to there being a visual component, there's also a tactile component. That's that's critical, you know. Um, uh, matte linen finishes and 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 uh, you know two and three millimeter punch board and uh, and cloth bags and wooden pieces. All of that is part of the joy, I think, of a tabletop board game. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree. And uh, I think that uh, you've you've done quite a, a great job. So. Uh, going going off of that a little bit, what this is just kind of a, a fun question. Um, but what what was your like? If you had to pick a favorite mechanism or system in the game, uh, what what was kind of your favorite? Like, you know, they they use the term "kill your darlings" right in game design. Um, but but sometimes like you you have your darling because it's it's awesome and wonderful and fantastic. So like what what. What was one of your favorite mechanisms in the game? Well, if you you know if you know if you've known played Feudum, you know that um, when you migrate a pawn to the board, you have a, a six-sided pawn, and you have to choose which of the six medieval characters you enter the board as, and every character has a special ability, and at any given time, you might have one, two, or up to three medieval characters out there and some characters have synergies with them so kind of knowing uh, how characters kind of work well together which ones work well together and experimenting on on various combinations i think is something i'm pretty pretty proud of Uh, so i would say that the variable player powers of the game um and and the synergies that various characters have along with the synergies in the guild because when you migrate a pawn to the board, 
um, you automatically are not, have membership to, uh, status towards um, towards towards the correlating guild. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That uh, that decision of which side to uh, turn your pawn to during the the migration, I I thought was uh, a very difficult decision, and so it, it added a, a really cool uh, tension just in that one decision. Um, so, so yeah, I, I also enjoyed, I enjoyed that, that mechanism. Um, and I also, I'm a sucker for, uh, card driven action selection. So, uh, there was just a lot of stuff going on in, in Feedum that, that I really enjoyed. Um, but that's, that's cool. That's a, a, a good, uh, good mechanism to, to point out. Um, so Feudum did, uh, pretty well on Kickstarter. Uh, I think it, it raised around two hundred and sixty thousand uh, dollars, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, which I I mean, what was that? What was that like for you to to see those kinds of numbers? Well, I still remember uh, the you know the first twenty four hours where it was kind of a shot in the dark. I didn't know how well it was going to do, and in in the first twenty four hours, it raised eighty eight thousand, and. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I, I, I think I, I not only have I funded it, but I have a business now. Um, and then, of course, the, the campaign ended at 264. But what, what was even more uh, surprising were all of the, the post-game sales on Backer Kit and the backer demand for all of the expansions. And so right after the campaign, the game added a you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, uh, to the, the full total. And then last year with all the expansions, I, I surpassed a million in gross sales after launching my third Kickstarter campaign, which was rudders and ramparts. So it's been an amazing ride and it, it certainly keeps me and my, my wife busy. Um, and, and not a day goes by when both of us aren't managing something about the business from customer service to, to fulfillment hubs, to, you know, well, I guess podcast interviews like this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I appreciate the time. Um, so what you, you said that you, uh, you're a professor. Um, and so what is it like juggling, uh, an, you know, a normal person job, if you will, and, and running a, uh, you know, board game publishing outfit? Well, fortunately, I have, as a professor, I have three months off in the summertime. And, you know, after classes are done in the afternoon and after meeting with students, uh, I have some free time. So it's really, it's a, it's a job that's kind of conducive to my, my moonlighting, I guess. Um, and I, you know, I try not to let it get in the way of, 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 of teaching uh, but w w there, there's actually kind of a synergy. I mean, um, I teach uh, strategic writing, strategic communication, which, you know, uh, it involves advertising and public relations. And all of that is, is, is part of what I do in the business. So I oftentimes talk about uh, the, the business and the knowledge that I've gleaned from, from my, my entrepreneurship. And that, that in turn helps the students. So I think there's a real nice synergy there. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, 
so going back just a little bit, um, can you can you give us just a little bit more on your uh, Kickstarter experience? Uh, I feel like you know uh, a lot of, especially you know, newer designers trying to to get into the self publishing uh, avenue, trying to to go that route. Um, Kickstarter can be uh, quite daunting. Uh, I know there's a lot of resources out right now, but even that in and of itself is is daunting. There's so much information. Sure. Um, what was what was your experience with with Kickstarter like? Um, well, was it was it horrible? Did you did you love it? Um, and would you do it again? Yeah, I I would do it again, and I am going to do it again. I mean, it's been a wonderful tool for me. Um, you know, in addition to being able to fund fund a game, it's it's really a marketing hype machine. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, Kickstarter charges processing fees and, and a percentage of the total funds raised, but, you know, I also get a turnkey way to, to promote and raise money for the project. I get, uh, kind of this intuitive way to interact with customers through, you know, comments and messages and updates within the Kickstarter world. And then I guess most importantly, a way to generate urgency. Uh, to a community of Kickstarter fans, some who are so loyal that they they call them super backers. So it's marketing hype machine is the best word that I can can think of to describe what Kickstarter does. It's not just it doesn't just raise funds; it also taps into an existing community that is salivating at you know your next project. So it's been it's been great for me. That's awesome. Uh, so I guess is is Feudum still in distribution? Like, if there's a listener uh, that is now interested, um, can they can they just go to their uh, you know friendly local game store and ask them to order in a copy of it, or can they go you know to an online retailer and and find the game? Sure. Yeah. Well, like most, like most friendly, your local friendly game stores out there, you know, they, sometimes they'll keep, they will have one in stock. Other times you just have to ask them to order it and they order it through their, from a distributor, whether it's Alliance or GTS or Southern Hobby. And I have a distribution broker that works with all of those guys. And then they, they've purchased a number from me that they then supply to local game shops. So if your if the local game shop doesn't have it, they can order it. And then of course, you can find it online. Um, there's all kinds of places like, like Cool Stuff Inc. that has it. Other, you know, online game shops. Amazon, I think, carries it. Although it's starting to dwindle down. It's um, my my inventory uh, is starting to dwindle down. I keep having to. I, I've done three print runs on it, um, and there's been steady demand, and people are still discovering it. You know. Um, so it's absolutely still out there and available. Awesome. And, and like we, uh, mentioned earlier, um, how, how many expansions are there now? I, I mean, there's, there's a handful, right? Yes, there, there are, uh, I want to say five. There's windmills and catapults. There's seals and sirens. There's alter ego. There's rudders and ramparts. And then there's a little mini expansion called Squirrels and Conifers. <laughs> yeah, they're they're all uh, they all look amazing. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this, but 
there's been uh, some kind of uh, fan modding, if you will, uh, to the game where people have created just like crazy components and, and you know, really, I guess, upgraded, if you will, uh, to like really elaborate uh, components. I, I'm sure you've, you've seen some of that, yeah? I have. Um, that's probably one of the most um, wonderful things that has happened throughout this whole process because, you know, when you create a world that uh, um, compels people, you get fans that start to kind of use your world to, to create their own things. And um, I was fortunate to just have been, you know, I guess on Board Game Geek, or maybe it was an email that I received. Um, but, and, and, I, and I learned about a fan who, uh, his, his name was Bruce Monson. And he's a, he was a miniature painter, a miniatures painter and an artist. And he, he, he was like, he's like a firefighter paramedic for the city of Colorado Springs. And, and he, he started to kind of create these little vessels for the ponds. And I saw it online and, and I was thinking, well, you know, people were asking to buy these things off of him. So I, you know, I, I approached him. I said, look, you know, I don't, I don't really mind this, but I really love what you're doing. Do you want to want, do you want to work together and kind of produce the official feudum version of this? Cause I think I can make an expansion out of it. Well, next thing you know, you know, we're, we're working together on it. And I brought in this guy named Scott Ryan, who's a 3d sculptor. And, um, before you know it, we're, we're working together on these wonderful miniatures and uh, I, I, that would not have happened if um, I wasn't paying attention. Man, that's, that's so cool. Like the, this hobby is, is wonderful and there are just some wonderful people and it's cool uh, when we all can collaborate in that way. So uh, this is, this is something I've been dying to know. Uh, What, what is next for Mr. Swanson and Oddbird Games, are you are you working on any other designs? Uh, and is is Oddbird going to publish anything else in the future? Absolutely, I, I'm hard at work uh, on a worker placement game, and I'm I'm far enough along that I've engaged my same artist, Justin Schultz. Uh, I can't reveal too much, but I, I will say that the game takes place in the late 1800s in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. So in that sense, it's a departure from fantasy, um, but it will still feature, you know, the same character whimsy of Feudum. And like Feudum, it's going to have resource management and, and a working cyclical economy and variable player roles and powers. And I, I think that's about all I'm willing to tell you at, at the moment. <laughs> Got to keep Man. some of this. What a, what a tease. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to see and, and hear more about it. Uh, would you say maybe just give us just this little tidbit? 
would you would you say that it is uh, similar to feudum in its weight? So complexity, depth is it is it similar to feudum? I would say it's it, it's lighter. It's lighter than feudum. I got my heavy euro out of the way, and now I would say this is more of a middle middleweight game. But still, it's, I would say still um, multi layered with multiple paths to victory. So it's, there's going to be quite a bit of fun to be had. Man, I'm pumped. Pumped to hear more. Uh, so what's some, what's some advice that you would give uh, to any designers listening to this right now? Some, some of our listeners are uh, independent designers. Um, we, we do some you know design content uh, through the Hex and Cube brand. And so um, what, what would be some advice that you would give any designers listening, and it could be anything from, uh, you know, the, the self-publishing aspect of it or design principles or, or, you know, working with Kickstarter, any advice? Yeah. Wow. Uh, there's so much to learn. I would say start by reading everything you can get your hands on from Jamie Stagmeyer. You know, he has a site called the Stonemeyer Games where you can find his blog. Um, it, it demystifies everything from choosing mechanics to, to finding an artist to launching a Kickstarter campaign. In fact, as I mentioned before, he wrote a book on it called A Crowdfunder Strategy Guide. It's a must read, this book. When I, when I started, I had you know, ambition and zeal and, and, and tenacity, but this book opened my eyes to everything that I was not doing. And it was just a, just really great in that that sense. Um, then let's see. I'm trying to think of other other sites. There's the the late James Matthew, rest his soul. His, his site, uh, uh, JamesMatthew.com, is a, a treasure trove of information about how distribution works, uh, retailers, manufacturing, you know, um, but also and also influencers like bloggers and vloggers and, and, and podcasters. Uh, you might even be listed on there, uh, both paid and unpaid, who, who's gonna, who might help you promote your game. I say paid and unpaid, meaning some podcasters, you know, just to make ends meet, will charge for some sort of review. Others are strictly unpaid. And then, you know, uh, the site lists their follow, follower and following and their subscriber base numbers. So you can kind of, plan out a strategy to maximize awareness and, and begin building relationships with these influencers. Um, so yeah, those two sites are, are extremely valuable. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, I would say for new designers, make sure that your owned media, uh, your game's Facebook page, Instagram page, Twitter account is building community long before your Kickstarter launch. Uh, make sure your your board game geek page is complete. Um, let's see. Re- you should remember that conventions are are critical to to your success. Uh, Gen Con, for instance, has um, something called the First Exposure Playtest Hall, where convention goers can play test and get excited about unpublished games. And this is really huge for your 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 brand and your new game. Um, or, you know, you could just show up at cons and find a free table, uh, to, and start kind of playing your game. You'd be amazed at the exposure you get from people just walking by, 
you know, invest in a little mini pop-up banner and put it on your table and voila, you know, you've begun spreading brand awareness. Um, let's see, there's, there's, there's something called Unpub events that are all over the U.S. that you can be involved in for, for playtesting, for feedback. Um, let's see, uh, I, I wrote an article that you guys could check out uh, for Tabletopia. Uh, it's called, let's see, Kickstarter for Board Games. Is it still working? Um, and it, it talks, it goes into why uh, Jamie Stegmar actually stopped uh, using Kickstarter for, for Stonemeyer games. Uh, very fascinating read, I think, that, that uh, can be helpful to new uh, designers. So, so much to learn. Yeah, for sure. That's all super good, super good stuff. Um, so, so Mark, if, if there's a listener out there that wants to know, uh, what you're doing and keep up with, with all the great stuff that you're a part of, uh, where, where can they find you? Okay. Well, that's an easy one. You can, you can follow my, uh, Facebook page, uh, at facebook.com slash feudum, F-E-U-D-U-M. Uh, that's the most up to date. Uh, there's my, uh, uh, publishing website oddbirdgames.com and uh, then there's my feudum page on board game geek of course um, that I monitor from time to time awesome I will I will put all of those links in the show notes so if there's any listeners that uh, w- want to find that stuff easily they will be able to do so uh, so mark thank you so much for hanging out with me tonight it was uh, it was a pleasure. It's been my pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, man. Best of luck to everything you're you're going to be working on. I'm I'm excited to check it out when you start to show the world. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, let why don't we get a game going on Tabletopia? Yeah, yeah. We'll set it up. Uh, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hopefully, this episode was enlightening for you in some way. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, make sure you sign up for the Hex and Cube mailing list. I'll have the link for that as well in the show notes. And please feel free to, to reach out to me uh, anytime on, on all the social medias. Um, I'd love to chat with you. On the next episode, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite older games. And what I mean by older is that games that came out at least 10 years ago that we still love to to bust out and get to the table. And we might talk a a little bit about ways in which games and the gaming experience has evolved over the last decade. So that'll be a a fun journey to the past. Uh, Make sure you go leave a a review or rating on whatever platform you listen to this. Um, And as this crazy old dude on TV used to say, keep your stick on the ice. Deuces. (laughs) 